MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. Hello, friend. I'm Paul Jarvis, and you're listening to Call Paul. I'm the author of Company of One, a book about intentionally growing a small business. I've also run many small businesses for the last 20 plus years. And I'm currently the co-founder of Fathom Analytics, a small privacy-focused analytics company. Businesses that lead with their values can sometimes get a bad rap. They're often called passion projects, charities pretending to be slightly for profit, and even lifestyle businesses. But maybe passion and values are what drive a company to do better than simply being transactional. Maybe drawing a line in the sand is exactly what drives sustainable growth for customers, audience, and brand. In this season of Call Paul, we're talking to small business owners who do the right thing and do well financially. And I know from experience, those two things don't have to be in opposition. They can, in fact, be complementary in the long term. We'll be at a crossroads about something and someone will say, we, we really need to be thinking forward about this and think forward is one of our values. And they'll say that to me about something, a decision I'm making. And then I'm like, oh, wow, whoa, you're right, okay. I mean, and they're living it. They're, they really believe these values. That's Britt Howard from Portland Garment Factory, a zero waste, lady owned, full service manufacturing company who cut and sew soft goods like garments and so much more. If that all sounds like a huge idea encompassing a vastness of work, that's because it is. For the last 14 years, they've created everything from pants with pockets for cheese to a 40-foot-long eyeball sculpture used as a backdrop for live music. And they do all of this in a values-first way, putting sustainability, ethical labor, intention, and heart above all else. On any given day, you'll walk in, come into the front door, and it's a big open space, so the ceiling is like 40 feet off the ground, you know, so big, wide warehouse vibe, lots of garage doors. You'll hear a lot of the kachunk sound of the machines. All of the uh, sewing machines have automatic back tack. That's a technical nerdy sewing thing that some people might get. But uh, anyway, it makes this loud noise. So it's like a lot of kachunk, kachunk, kachunk all the time. That part of the factory is on the first floor. And then you come up to the second floor and it's just this very colorful, but calm, vibe that's like design studio development there's places to meet with clients 
uh, our sourcing library, which has all the different material swatches. Then you come up to the third floor and you're in this little quiet, like apartment style turret office thing on the very top of the building. And it has um, like a shower and everything you could live up here. And on any given day, we could be making something like a jacket or a soft sculpture that's being hoisted up off the ground so we can like beat it or hand sew it from the underneath side. And we have um, hoists in the larger fabrication area. We also have a basketball hoop. We have a disco ball and a sound system. So it's a really fun place to be. And it's very buzzy. There's people in every little niche area of the shop doing different things. It's a magical place, honestly. That does sound pretty amazing. So what's your background? How did this all come about for you? I've always considered myself an artist and made art and done different artistic endeavors from dance to theater to 3D art and sculpture. I made some films in high school. Like I've always dabbled all around. And then when I went to college, I studied anthropology and that is what I thought my career would be in. And I was, of course, always making stuff on the side and really into sculpture making. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, I started making baby clothes and it was a serendipitous thing where I ended up getting orders for baby clothes. Like I would take my daughter and be around and people would say like, what? I want to buy that. Or I want something like that for my child. And so I was like, cool, I'll like have an Etsy store. And then maybe I'll have a line of baby clothes. And I got this order from a store in New York. And I thought, okay, I can do this. Like I can figure out how to make this in all the sizes and source the material. I was totally like, yeah, fake it till you make it type of thing. And I got home and asked some friends, like, where would you go to have help or get pattern work done or get these more technical things completed. And everyone was like, I don't know. I don't know of any place like that in Portland. So it just got me thinking like, maybe I could start that and then also do work for my own business. So we could have like a workroom where people could come, other designers could use us as a resource. And it kind of just continued from there. And it started really small. I started with $2,000. Boom. Nice. It's been super easy, you know, 14 years, not a hiccup. Did you think before that started that that was a path for your life? Or did that just kind of like, as you were making decisions, it was just like, okay, this is leading me in that direction? I think it's a little bit of both because I didn't ever think until I was in the midst of birthing the idea that I would own a factory per se. But I've always been very entrepreneurial since I was very young. And I've had lots of different businesses and well, I've been in some tough positions before where I'm like, well, I need to make money. I have this barrier and this barrier. And sometimes the best way out of that is with your own ideas. For whatever reason, I would start a business and just start hustling, you know? Yeah, I think some people, that's just a switch in their head. Like even for me, I've worked for myself for almost 25 years and it's been so many different things, but it's always like, if there's a problem that I want to solve, it's like, oh, I think I can solve this and then I'll start the thing that will try to solve this and then it'll solve it for other people if things go right, which they sometimes actually do. So when you're starting a new business that doesn't actually exist, where do you pull inspiration from? When I first got started, I was meeting people out of the blue that corresponded specifically to what I was trying to do, to where it felt very serendipitous. So there's an element of magic. So look for the magic. I like talking to people. I'm serious. Like one of the ways that I got connected to my original machine repair guy who started, who, who basically held, held my hand and showed me this is what a factory is and helped me with my business over the years. I was introduced to him through a woman that I met at a garage sale because I was still doing the vintage clothing buy, sell, trade thing. And I was at a garage sale doing what they call picking, you know, finding my vintage. So I'm talking to this lady 
And instead of just here's 10 bucks for the stuff by, she was really interesting. So I'm chatting with her. She had a lots of bits and bobbles of sewing things. So I think that that just being super open to and receptive to other people and just letting your guard down. I noticed because I work with a lot of startups and a lot of people who have an idea and they come to us to do prototyping or, you know, do their sampling. A lot of times there's NDAs. There's like, this is a sealed situation, which I do understand in some industries and with some product development, you have to be really careful of who you talk to about it. But I think being open to the fact that like other people are mostly going to think your idea is cool. They're not going to try to copy you. They're mostly going to be stoked for you to do it. Even if they're like, I'm going to try, you know, you're going to do a better job. People have copied me before. And I just go, good luck with that. You're going to do your version of that. I'm going to do mine. So I think being open-minded and to share where you're trying to go, the world will give you a path. It's a good mindset to have. Is there a project that best represents Portland Garment Factory in your mind? A lot comes to mind because it depends on what what it, I'm looking to ha- represent. So for instance, super hard work, teamwork, coming together, meeting deadlines, blowing it out of the park on a job is a job we're doing right now. And that's jackets. So that, that, those are, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's just jackets, but it's a jacket and we are very well-versed in putting together a jacket, right. And putting the zippers in and making the pockets and it's not basic, but on the scale of everything we do, it's, it's not uh, sewing paper blazers, which we've made like a men's blazer, but it's made out of paper and it gets scented with a um, old spice. This was a project for old spice. Then it got flat packed and sealed and put into GQ magazine. And the idea was that some of the magazines would come with this, that they'd open the magazine. And instead of that thing, you rub on your arm to get the scent, you would actually be able to take this jacket out and wear it. And that was a project we did. That would be a good example of like someone coming up with the craziest idea. Like what if we made the edible? Could, could the thing be edible? Can you make an edible hat? Like what if you said the most crazy idea, we would probably be able to come up with that. And that's more the side of the business that really grew over the last 10 years, which is more of that innovation, creative collaboration, and like really wild and wacky. And then mixing that with traditional manufacturing and production. How do we make thousands of these instead of just five? Yeah. I mean, you've made such a variety of super interesting things. Is there, I guess, a particular piece or a project that is your favorite or maybe that you were most proud of? I'm really proud of the eyeball that we made for the Sunra Orchestra that we put over in the Portland Art Museum and it hung as the backdrop while the orchestra played in 2019 or 18. It was a huge like 24 foot wide eyeball sculpture and the eyelashes came out from the top and they're 40 feet long and they went out into the crowd and over the crowd and it was just like this super cool idea of Sun Ra, the guy looking down at us in the middle of the eyeball was the planet Saturn. And it had like this ring and we used only materials that we already had in-house. It was 100% cobbled together. We had one week to make it. It was the week between Christmas and New Year. Somehow I just drew it on a piece of paper. Everyone in the whole team was like, okay, then we'll do it like this. Da, 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 da. And we just made it. And then we installed it. We And I went there and I'm up in the scissor lift, like installing it. And it was just like, how did this just happen so quickly? It was 100% our idea. And they said, whatever you want to do. I mean, we could have just put sequins behind them. They were like, just, can you make a backdrop? And it was like a pro bono job too, but it just made that night so special. Tillamook cheese, they're like a farmer 
owned co-op creamery, I think, oh, you know, over a hundred years old, they sell their products all over the United States. So everyone knows like, tell them up cheese, tell them like ice cream. They came to us and they're like, okay, it's national cheddar day. This was a few years ago. So we've done two national cheddar days now. Say the weirdest thing, like, could you have insulated pockets and go to a party and just pull cheese out of your pockets and like start shredding it onto it? Some yes. Yes. In fact, you can in our world. <laughs> so that was so fun to, to work on that. With the width and breadth of the projects that you all take on, how do you collaborate in a way that makes sense for both you and, and your team to find enjoyment and want to do the project and the client on the other end who probably has shareholders that they need to like sell the idea of insulated cheese pants to? Like, how do you find that balance of, of collaboration where both sides are, are getting what they need out of it? Something I like to always do at the very beginning is pull as much information out of whoever it is we're collaborating, like our stakeholder within that company. It's almost like I'm turned into a researcher for an hour in that meeting. And I'm just like, what is the end result or end product? What do you want out of this? What would be your ideal situation? For instance, it's important for us to know what it looks like and what do you want it to look the thing we're going to make. But to me, that's easy. The part is what you're saying, which is getting that buy-in from the rest of the group. And how do we hit the budget? Because sometimes if you don't ask, what's the end result of this, you can get really far down the road in a project and not realize that this is actually a freebie. We're going to give these out for free to people who on our Instagram or something. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, that's a different kind of end use. Just knowing all of the whole scale of the project. Sometimes people don't want to share it. They're like, oh, that doesn't matter. I just, can you make this thing? And it's like, well, we're going to make it better if we are really brought in. And that's when we know we're working with a really great partner is when they really want to engage with us. It, even if just for the beginning, I get it if they're like, okay, let's move on and talk about design because that's the exciting part. But we need to know the backstory of the project from the beginning. Yeah. And that makes sense. Like you wouldn't want to make something that costs a thousand dollars to manufacture to like give away like 10,000 copies of or something like that. It needs to make sense. Mm -hmm. I've been in that scenario when we didn't ask that question or it wasn't completely made clear to us and we will design it into the wrong tier. We, I need to know what you need. From what I read on your website, your company is super values driven. Does that then affect which clients you decide to work with? We've been really lucky lately to be asked to work with some companies that I feel we are so aligned with. We couldn't be more aligned, really. There's other times where we've been asked to work on projects and we have a really deep relationship with some of the sportswear brands in Oregon, which there's a lot of them. Someone could take that as a negative, seeing that we work so often with these other companies. But what I can say from my experience of being a part of those teams and on the micro level, not on the macro like Nike or one of those as a whole global corporation, but when I'm working with them individually here in Portland with one team of like 10 people, we are able to infuse our values into that team and that project in a way that is really powerful. And the individuals that work at large companies like that, a lot of times we as individuals are aligned. And so, yes, maybe they are my client. They work for this larger corporation, but as individuals, I'm able to say things like, for instance, on a project where maybe we were, we're really, it's getting pushed into, um, it's going to be vinyl or something. And I'm like, Hey, that's PVC. Like maybe we could use this other fabric. It's going to look a little different. Here's why and how, and how they'll behave differently. This one's going to be more sustainable. Sometimes I win that battle and sometimes I don't, but then we also have other ways of picking up the slack on the very end of a project as far as the waste stream. And 
even sometimes I can get larger companies to put some budget toward that. It just really depends on what the project is. But I feel like them working with me is a value add for them as far as even giving them these ideas. It's not like I, I charge the same prices to a large company that I would to a small company. So it really helps us. Plus we, we run lots of programs. So it's tricky, but I always go back to that question because you don't want to get too wrapped up in patting yourself like, oh, it's fine. We're, you know, we're doing good work outside of this when, okay, well, you're only working for this one company. That's where most of your revenue is coming from. Why are the values that you have as a business important in, in so much as some people come at business as it's a transactional, the most revenue wins kind of thing. And then there's other people who are like, okay, well, these are the values that I have as a human being. I run the company. Those values are infused in the business. And hopefully it trickles down and everybody kind of can not always just share those values, but have an idea of what those values are when moving forward. So why have values as a company and why the specific ones that you have? Values in general are important to me as an owner to infuse and we set out on our core value journey with the entire team. So it started with whiteboards, everyone had dry erase markers. And at that time, there were five languages spoken in the shop. So I had three interpreters because we didn't need one for English and we didn't need one for the Spanish speaking employees. And I asked them to go up and write under these different siloed kind of tentative idea values, like, or like, don't be a jerk. What does that make you think of? Or like, what kind of client do you want? Okay. That's how be human was born. That's one of our values. What's interesting is that sometimes it helps me manage people and it helps the managers manage people because we'll be at a crossroads about something and someone will say, we, we really need to be thinking forward about this and think forward is one of our values. And they'll say that to me about something, a decision I'm making. And then I'm like, oh, wow, whoa, you're right. Okay. I mean, and they're living it they're, They really believe these values, a practical reason for having values and living them and having them infused as far as like, you don't just have them up on a plaque, but you actually talk about them in your day-to-day -day language and stuff would be that owning a business, at least for me, and especially the last two years, there's so many little issues all the time that if you have a foundation and some lenses to look through when you're decision-making or when you're, how do I proceed in this situation or whatever, it helps me. It does not resonate with me to run a company with profit being the only indicator of if we're successful. I think that's just who I am. You know, this isn't trendy for me. I think it just really is who I am. And I didn't know that it was going to be cool. The way that I've run businesses is more on the, the values and then sliding the business and revenue into how the values work. But I also don't think it's binary. I think some folks think, well, if I am a mission-led company, then I'll sacrifice profit. At least that's from my experience and the experience that I have, it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like that helps propel you forward and that can lead to possibly even more revenue, even if that's not the goal. It can be the thing that is the differentiator as opposed to just like, I need to pick a company. There's all these companies that are the same. Uh, like I'll just pick that one kind of thing. So it can be the differentiator. It can. And sometimes, you know, thinking about the things that we do here that cost us money to live our values, right? Like in a really practical set sense, the way that we recycle materials that cost money, our certifications and getting recertified and having somebody on board who's a committee member that's paid an unpaid employee who part of their responsibilities is to oversee these checkpoints, like for the B Corp certification, for instance. That costs the business money, but it's a win-win for me because I get to have my values and people really are attracted. So I attract good talent with that. And 
we might get chosen, like you said, over another company because we're actually doing the work and it's vetted and like, it's very hard to be a B Corp. And I think it's good that it's very hard because it shows that it's a vetted process that you can't just do overnight. And, you know, it was really frustrating for me to have that certification take so long. And I felt like there was a lot of barriers and I was like, this is just for big companies arg, you know, but after I went through it and really learned about it, I realized it was a positive. Hey, I wanted to pause for a quick break. If you're enjoying this season of Call Paul, you'll love a small business story from our friends at Courier, a magazine about working better and living smarter. In the summer of 2021, a kid's clothes and toy store in Edinburgh, Scotland, called Bontot, had its Instagram hacked and held for ransom. Co-owner Christina Curie learned tons about staying resilient and calm in the face of a threat to her business, and in the process, learned five very valuable lessons for any small business owner. For the full story, head to couriermedia.com. And if you want more stories like this, you can sign up for their weekly newsletter at couriermedia.com slash email. Does running Portland Garment Factory feel like gate crashing or did it when you started because it is different from other businesses whose end products are similar to just like making a jacket or, or that sort of thing. Yes. I would say it has felt that way in many ways. And I have skirted around the gates, climbed over them, pulled the bars apart and stepped through. Like I've tried all different ways and then end as well as the traditional, like, may I have the key, sir? And then I get the key and then I go through the gate. It's been almost 14 years. We often celebrate our anniversary in the fall, but technically I started it in the summer of 2008. Being a female founder, being young, not having a venture capital or investors or startup money. There's been lots of reasons why I've had to crash the gates. I think it was 2021 that you had a fire and had to start again. How did that feel to start like with almost like a literal blank slate? What changed in terms of the way that PGF operates? Did you go back and rethink things and like, oh, we don't want to do things this way anymore. This is the opportunity now to do things a different way. Yes, absolutely. And it was obviously like the most tragic thing that's ever happened in my life. You know, one of them, it was terrible. On Tuesday next week, it will be a year. And we've went all the way from losing everything to being in a brand new building with all new equipment, working on the, one of the biggest jobs we've ever had and completing it. Awesome. Isn't that insane? It's almost like, how did this happen? We were off technically, like we didn't have a factory for eight months. So a lot of people spent time at home, you know, everybody stayed on the payroll and like, we just, we figured it out because you know we had insurance money. It was just nuts, but kept everyone on board. And the people who we're not like purely fabricators or sewers or something where they're like, we literally have nothing to do. We would get together every week or every couple times a week and just, yeah, ask ourselves those questions. Like once we got over the initial shock and I, I mean, we're still not all the way over it. Like people still are like, well, where's that one? And they'll talk about something we made like five years ago. Like, where's that one sample of that? And then we're all like, oh, we're doing it again. Like we think it's in the drawer and it's not here. And, you know, we lost a lot of stuff, all the paperwork, like all of the files, all of the patterns. It was just kind of been crazy to start fresh. 
But in another way, I was at my mechanic yesterday and he bought a building and he's moving his mechanic shop. And the idea that he has to move all of that equipment and like move all of that greasy, like all those little nuts and bolts and like all of the parts. I didn't have to do that. I had the opportunity to start completely fresh. We moved into this pretty perfect building. We did a few cosmetic things, changed some lighting and it put some paint, but it, that was easy. I mean, it did feel really gross as far as like carbon footprint goes that we'd put so much energy into like conservation and within our workspace, our materials and everything. And then it just all burned. That's terrible. But I wanted to continue on, you know, like, I think it could have been a really nice bow on the whole PGF story, like, and then it burned down and done. And then I could go do something else, but it just didn't even occur to me. It's almost occurring to me now where I'm like, Oh, I could have quit. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously very different, but like the co-founder that I had in the current business left a couple years ago. And I had that same thought of like, if there was an out, this would be it. And should I take it? I'm glad I didn't in hindsight now because I found another co-founder. But there was that spot where it was like the day before it hadn't crossed my mind that, that I could be doing something different. As bad as situations like you went through are, I guess it does give you this space to think like, okay, well, what can we do? What can we do different? It probably reaffirmed keeping going because like you could have made the choice to put that bow on it and be done. As It didn't feel right, especially coming after everything we did during the, at the beginning and all during 2020 and the pandemic and uh, mask making efforts and how hard we work to stay in business and to stay afloat. If there's a problem, I try to solve it. It's almost, I'm blindly going toward the problem. Like I will solve. And then, whoa, 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 what are you doing, Brent? Like you don't have to solve this. And then it's just a game at that point, I guess. And I'm just figuring it out. And plus I love PGF. Plus on top of that, I love my employees. I really just didn't see that as the end result. And I'm glad because even though it's, it's been hard, you know, this whole last year, I'm so lucky. I feel like we're all fine. Like we're bigger and better, all these good things to come. Mm-hmm. How do you balance running a business with like taking care of you and taking care of Brett? Well, over the years, I wasn't as good and it showed in my snappiness toward my employees or things that would happen that I felt really embarrassed about later. Anytime I would be snappy or sassy or spicy toward someone who works for me, 100% of the time, it was because I was angry with myself about something that I wasn't doing or something I wish I would have said sooner or whatever. And I don't want to be that person ever. Even in the most stressful moment, I want to be the leader that is strong for the other people because we can get really stressed out here. We get up crazy deadlines and making stuff is hard. You know, you can fail at making things and it can turn out bad. Part of that journey needs to be taking care of myself. And, and, you know, to take care of yourself, to say I'm taking care of myself for others, that in and of itself is a little bit like, okay, that's not the point, but I'm getting there. So I would say that I have a really wonderful team and I don't feel like judged. I feel like everyone takes care of everyone. So if, for instance, if I come in at 10 AM and they have no idea where I was in the morning, I went to the gym. I, I had a longer coffee break with, for myself and I took a relax. I mean, that doesn't happen that much, but when I am doing those things, no one's like, where were you? You know, like I'm, I'm living my life. I'm working. I'm, I'm figuring out what is my balance and there's no judgment in that. And so that was so freeing to me to be like, oh, you have like awesome team and you can just come and go. And every, as long as the business is getting taken care of, which it is, Brit 
doesn't have to answer to anyone. I think for a long time I was, you know, I was really young when I started my business and I thought I have to be there super early on time, makeup, hair, like the whole thing in order to prove that I am a business owner. And that's not the kind of business owner I even want to be. And nobody's requiring that of me. Yeah, there's something to be said for the trust that comes with autonomy. And I'm glad you're thinking about this because I've seen it kind of work where the leader of a business does try to display those traits of like being the first one and the last one. And then the employees see that and they're like, okay, well, this is what's expected of me because this is what that person. And then it's just a vicious cycle of like who can be the most productive. I don't think that ends well. So I'm glad to hear that you're (laughs) thinking about that kind of stuff. How do you define success for yourself and for PGF? It's been hard because my answer right now in this moment is that defining my success today would be like that I'm not breaking down at home or that my neck doesn't hurt. Like I have this thing that happens whenever I'm too stressed out or my neck just feels like concrete. And that's when that starts to happen, then I know like, okay, something's off because a lot of times these little anxieties and stressors will creep into your body at a time when the other thing that's actually causing it isn't present. So it's not a one-to-one like where I'm in a meeting that's stressful and the thing starts hurting. So it's, it's being really present minded and being really present with my body and being like checking in and okay, you're feeling like this, something's out of whack. And that's what success is for me right now. So what does running something like a business mean to you? And how can it be seen as a positive? Yeah, I think it's from my perspective of what business can be and should be, honestly, it is a positive. I've heard people say it in a negative way, like the city of Portland's being run like a business. And I'm like, well, it's really who the owner of this business is or the leader of this business or whatever, who, who you should be saying that about. Maybe they need new leaders, but the idea of running something from a place of are things streamlined and efficient? Are things organized? Are people heard? Are people taken care of? Is there an element of wellness? Like all of these things you can do in a community setting. You can do them in your family. You can do it in your business. It's just the formula for harmony, which what's going on with this word harmony? It just popped into my head. (laughs) It's my new mantra. The last question that I have for you is what's next? What's next for PGF? Like in terms of either like a specific project or like a, a broader vision that you have for where you want things to go? I have a bigger vision that was born once we got into this building. It was almost like something that had been percolating for years, but it just, there were so many barriers in the old shop, just even um, capacity wise and just space wise. But the new shop has just opened up so many opportunities for growth, not necessarily revenue, but yes, revenue, but also community involvement and activism. Yeah, I have a new side to launch of the business that is more of a B2C instead of my most of my business is B2B. But because of the pandemic, I quickly had to figure out how to sell a lot of things to a lot of individuals. And I hadn't done that in the past, even understanding how that worked and and, and then like customer service and all of that. I was always scared of selling to individuals like, oh, the returns and the little it's not hard. We figured it out. So now that we understand the back end of how does PGF as a manufacturer have inventory and how do we sell and how do we manage that? It actually made this other idea that was percolating for a long time. And then also getting the newer, bigger building all, I'm like, it's time. I had similar where I, I went from working with like 10 or so clients a year to selling books and now selling software and it's like oh you're you're trading like a dozen customers for thousands of customers and this is weird and feels like 
Yeah, it just feels like a different kind of exposure. Yeah, to to deal with. And it's just volume. Like once you get over the mental hurdle, it's like volume is a solvable problem. Yeah, I had to have some people kind of explain that to me that work with me. And I think it was that I'm not as much anymore, but used to be pretty analog as far as was still writing checks. I would make a spreadsheet on a piece of paper because I'm an artist and I like to use my hands. And once I realized, oh, there's systems for that, like a mail list, there's this and they integrate and understanding what a CRM is. I mean, this is all, this all had to be new to me. It wasn't stuff that I just knew going into starting my business. So once I understood there was ways to organize this volume and manage it and that you can hire someone else to do that. If you can, if you have the luxury of, or even letting somebody who's already working in your company kind of like take that on, on the side as you grow, voila. And sometimes there's not, and that's a good place to be also to know when something just isn't working and it's not, it doesn't have that hook. It's okay to go, I'm going to go over here. Um, Because sometimes we get, especially like the entrepreneurial culture of you can do it. Like it only takes this, you know, sometimes you can try really hard at something and it's, and it's like this, there's something, the magic isn't in this. It feels like a lot of what you do is led by your openness. Like this is a particular trait for you. So I was wondering, is that a trait or is there another one that you feel like has really positioned you well as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think there's two traits that I would look for in employees when I'm hiring and I want them in myself and I value in others. And that is hard work and compassion slash empathy. I think that knowing how to work really hard and, and knowing what that even feels like, like actually just being willing to go the hard work distance is I really value it. And it feels good to work really hard to me. And then I think also that compassion and empathy part, when you have compassion and can lead from that place, you can connect with others. And there's just so many beautiful things that can come from being open and putting yourself in other shoes are just things we teach children about treating others how you want to be treated. But just that compassion component, I think, is really powerful. And our world is just maybe in need of more of that. There's a great resilience to Brit in Portland Garment Factory that I don't think would happen if they simply manufactured clothes. Their drive and persistence exploring new ideas seems like it comes from wanting to solve problems they come up against, like their entire building burning down in a fire, for example, not just quickly or efficiently, but elegantly and in a way that aligns with how they want the world to be. A bit of a renaissance seems to be happening with companies like Portland Garment Factory, who are driven by values which in turn drive revenue and sustainability. Clearly defining values helps them stay on track to actually live them, even in the face of immense uncertainty. As Britt said, sometimes as business owners, we need to skirt around the gates, climb over them, or even pull the bars apart and step through. We need to do this because sometimes the gates are part of a broken or failing or even unfair status quo that may just need to not exist any longer. I'm hopeful for the state of small business with folks like Brit leading the way. 
the way they see the world and the why of how they do commerce feels almost too good to be true. But it's been successful for over a decade and counting. And of course, I should really look into getting myself a pair of those cheese pants. Next week, I'm chatting with a restaurant owner who has to deal with the complexities of keeping her restaurant open and selling food from a region that's currently involved in a horrible war. I hope you'll tune in. Call Paul is a MailChimp original podcast. The show is made possible with the help of the whole amazing team, Julie Douglas, Ruth Eddy, Sasha Brown, Tierra Darnell, Kaida Jesus, and Zoe Culkin. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player so you can check out all of our other episodes and seasons. Oh, and if you want more awesome podcasts, go to MailChimp.com slash presents.